This episode of AgriPulse Steep Dive is brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim. Disease prevention in livestock is necessary to ensure a secure food supply. Beringer Ingelheim is proud to offer the vaccines and innovative treatments trusted by U.S. producers and veterinarians to protect livestock. I love Christmas. And one of my favorite Christmas traditions is finding time at some point in the holiday season to watch Elf. Santa's coming to town! I know him! I know him! If you don't agree that it's the best Christmas movie ever made, then one, you're wrong, and two, save your emails. You won't convince me otherwise. Why do I bring up Will Ferrell's finest work at the beginning of a farm policy podcast? Because it was while that cinematic classic was in theaters that the American beef industry was reeling. In the movie, Buddy the Elf comes to the United States from the North Pole. In real life, the U.S. beef industry was dealing with a much less welcome visitor that would go on to shape the future of U.S. animal health and agriculture trade. I'm Spencer Chase. Let's explore that holiday season and the months and years that would follow as we look at the lessons learned from various animal disease outbreaks in the second episode of our deep dive on farm policy's unanswered questions, corralling the issue. ever want to make someone in the beef industry shudder, just ask them what they were doing on December 23, 2003. Pretty much everyone in the sector can tell you exactly where they were on that day when Ag Secretary Ann Veneman walked up to a podium at the Department of Agriculture and delivered some shocking news. Today, we received word from USDA's National Veterinary Services Laboratories in Ames, Iowa, that a single Holstein cow from Washington State has tested as presumptive positive for BSE, or what is widely known as mad cow disease. Those 20 seconds would go on to shape the last 20 years of animal health policy. There had been animal disease emergencies before that day. There have been since. There will be again. But it's impossible to overstate the significance of the 2003 detection of bovine spongiform encephalopathy on American shores for the U.S. beef industry and the animal ag sector as a whole. BSE was already in the news and front of mind for the global beef industry. British beef exports had just gone through a years-long battle to restore market access after the European Union banned the product in 1996. That outbreak also had another effect outside the trade arena research had suggested the disease could be transferred to humans through infected meat. As a result, studies had shown British consumers were losing trust in their food supply, especially when compared to citizens in countries where no BSE outbreak had taken place. This wasn't just an issue of shipping steaks around the world. It was a matter of consumer confidence. To understand the complexity, let's look at things in three areas. The direct impact on the beef industry, how other sectors handled the news, and how 2003's reaction will shape future outbreaks. So let's start by going back to December 2003. Dale Moore was USDA's chief of staff at the time. He recalled the story of the BSE outbreak for us on our Meet the Farmhands video series last year. First, there was hands-on information security. 
He had family in town for the holidays, and his father, a USDA employee in his own right, had accompanied him to the office. And Dad's sitting in the back of my office or down at the other end of it, I don't know, reading a paper or something, and he, they tell me what's going on, and then you know, they look at him, and I said, okay, this is my dad. He works for FSA, and I said, Dad, as of this moment, you are read in. So anything you hear in here is, is confidential, if not, you know, classified. And I said, you can't say a word about what you're, you're hearing. We finally got home that night about 10 o'clock and other family members were all gathered at our house. And I hear my dad talking to my brother and, and he said, I, I don't know what's going on. He goes, Dale Wayne said, I can't talk about it. But he said, he goes, he goes, it's a wonder these people don't hate him. And I stopped what I was doing. I was like, what are you, what, why did you say that? And he goes, well, he goes, that one guy you told who had just gotten off a plane uh, going home for Christmas and you told him to get back on the plane and come back. Dale had to make a lot of phone calls that day, so I can't be certain this is the case. But there's a chance the person his dad was talking about was Mike Torrey. I was um, in Topeka, Kansas, and I'd gone out there for the Christmas holiday. My dad had just passed away a few months before, and I stopped in Topeka to have lunch. And I went into a um, restaurant that in hindsight I didn't realize was a cinder block building because when I came out, my phone lit up, and apparently I had no reception within that restaurant. And I called in, and they asked me to get to a secure location to call them back. We all got summoned back to D.C., so I drove over to Wamego, Kansas, and told my mother, who just lost her husband, my father, that I was going to have to go back to D.C. So that's what, what I did. Tory was working in USDA's Congressional Relations Office at the time. So his part of the response included alerting various folks on Capitol Hill. These days, many Hill staffers have a landline phone on their desk, mostly for decoration. Important communications are handled via cell phone assigned to them by their office and paid for by the American taxpayer. In 2003, landline phones on Capitol Hill were a little more in vogue. Why do I say this? It's not to make some kind of technology these days statement. It's more to point out that if Hill staffers were scattered across the country for the holiday season, Tory was also going to have to figure out where they were. In the case of Mark Halverson, then the chief of staff for Senate Ag ranking member Tom Harkin, that meant, you, you know what, I'm just going to let Mike tell this one. His mom answers the phone and she's like, well, he's taking a shower. And I said, well, get him out of the shower. <laughs> He got out of the shower and I told him and we always joked about it. He's always said, I'm glad you got me. I mean, it was that you know, big a deal. While Tory was once again working the phones and Halverson was drying off, other aspects of the response were in full swing. USDA did its best to limit the market reaction to the news. Veneman's press conference didn't take place until trading was closed for the day. She also sought to assure consumers of the safety of the product on the market in her remarks. At this time of year... Many Americans are making plans for the holidays and for food. We see no need for people to alter those plans or their eating habits or to do anything but have a happy and healthy holiday season. I plan to serve beef for my Christmas dinner, and we remain confident in the safety of our food supply. But the news still sent the markets into a tailspin. For instance, the monthly average price for a choice-grade steer in the Iowa-Minnesota reporting region dropped 16% between December 2003 and January 2004. 
Terrain Chief Analytics and Research Officer Don Close was a beef industry economist for Rabobank at the time. Oh, the first couple of weeks were, were horrible because the market panicked and we saw the reaction to the market so heavily over respond. And at that point in time, exports as a percent of total beef production was about 10%. And, we'd, and we'd, we're continuing to show gains. We essentially dropped to zero in exports overnight. And, it, and it's taken us you know, until just the last two or three years to get back above that 10% level that we were at in 2003. Randy Block was a few years into his tenure as the CEO of beef industry economics firm Cattlefax, a position he still holds today. Every year, Block and his Cattlefax colleagues give an economic outlook at the annual cattle industry convention. Producers get there bright and early to hear their insights, which are typically framed up around some historic context of where the industry is at in the grand scheme of the cattle cycle. The historic trends are projected onto giant screens in colorful charts packed with information for the crowded room. And almost every one of those charts shows the effects of that December day. I think if you go back and you look at the numbers, uh, you could argue that the cow that stole Christmas cost this industry somewhere between 30 and $35 billion as we came through that event and how long it took to recover. Today, Dan Hallstrom is the CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. In 2003, he was working for Cargill and trying to manage the trade fallout of the news. In a few cases, U.S. beef was already on the way to foreign markets, and each country handled that situation differently. Some didn't allow it at all, so it had to be uh, either kept in uh, you know, bonded warehouses and then decided upon a later date in a foreign in a bonded warehouse what to do. Some was immediately turned back. Um, and, and some uh, countries let, let it in if it was after a certain slaughter date. Because you know, if, if December 23rd was a date, may, or may, maybe December 10th was okay. It, it, but it, it varied by every country. Farm policy lobbyist Randy Russell was among the list of people with altered holiday schedules that year too. His firm, the Russell Group, had clients across the food and ag value chain, and they all wanted to know what was going on. When you get a BSE outbreak, then the first thing that happens is exports get shut down. So then the question is, okay, so what is it going to take to get exports reopened? Um, are there going to be more cases? When this first came out, you know, there was all this discussion about, okay, are there more cows that are going to test positive? Then you get the rumor mill going, of which oftentimes that's all it is, is a rumor. But they're finding more positives in this part of the country, and they're finding more here. And what that means, the impact on the grain sector, uh, other, other protein uh, folks. So for us, because we had a lot of client interest in the meat sector, but also the grain sector, um, and also some in the animal drug side, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was a real challenge uh, just to manage all of that. It was nonstop for about three or four weeks. Um, and the only day that literally there wasn't a call, USDA would do a briefing, I believe it was at 3 o'clock every day. And um, uh, the only day they didn't do it was Christmas. The cow that tested positive in the U.S. turned out to be of Canadian origin. 
To this day, it remains the only case of classical BSE detected on American soil. Six other confirmations were all of the less serious, atypical variety. But the dust wouldn't fully settle on the 2003 BSE outbreak for more than a decade. Most countries began accepting U.S. beef within a few years of the outbreak. In Japan, one of the beef industry's most critical markets, partial access was restored for certain products in 2005, two years after the initial outbreak. China first allowed U.S. beef back into the market through official channels in 2017. Full access was not restored in Japan until 2019. Now, with the benefit of 20 years of hindsight, National Cattlemen's Beef Association CEO Colin Woodall can see how the outbreak shaped the American disease response protocols in place today. It was a wake-up call to everybody in the U.S. business on several things. One is, are we prepared for a foreign animal disease? And also a realization of just how important those foreign markets are to us when all of a sudden they all shut down. And then to also test that relationship between the regulators, both at the state and national level, and us as the regulated entity to make sure we can share information to try to uh, respond address the situation as quickly as possible, and to try to improve. And I do think there were several improvements that came out of our BSE experience, and we are trying to draw on a lot of that as we prepare for foot and mouth disease. The BSE case study has fingerprints on the preventative plans for a potential outbreak of foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, highly pathogenic avian influenza, the list goes on and on. But the wildly different nature of each animal protein sector means the lessons of one industry don't necessarily lead to wholehearted disease prevention in another. Take, for instance, the pork industry's watershed moment in the fall of 2013, when porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, or PEDV, began wiping out hog herds. The spread of the disease caught the industry a little off guard. Liz Wagstrom was on hand at the National Pork Producers Council as the industry struggled to react to that outbreak. We didn't have required reporting. We didn't have quarantine rules set up. And so by the time it was identified, we had it in, I believe, six or eight states. And so any talk of stopping movement and quarantining seemed to be kind of like closing the the barn door after the horse is out. The BSE outbreak was detected in 2003 because confirmations of foreign animal diseases are required to be reported to USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service upon testing and verification. But outside those diseases, producer requirements are much more limited. When PEDV was first spreading, it was an unknown entity. But after a few months, the powers that be declared it a reportable disease. And even then, the industry was still reacting on the fly. It was definitely learn as you go, definitely kind of look at what a appropriate control plan was, um, look at how government funding could help. Data sharing between producers improved. Biosecurity protocols were toughened. Slowly but surely, the industry has greatly diminished the impact of the disease in the United States. But biosecurity protocols were soon to come into focus for the American poultry industry just one year later. We'll dive into that next. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim. 
For more than 100 years, Beringer Ingelheim has been proud to prevent disease and support animal health through the development of new vaccines and innovative treatments. U.S. livestock producers and veterinarians trust Beringer to protect their animals and ensure a secure food supply today and for generations to come. Farmers can control a lot of things. When they wake up, what they're going to do that day, whether or not to throw away a perfectly good five-gallon bucket or set it aside because it might come in handy someday. There are a lot of decisions to make day-to-day on a farm, and a lot of them are totally within a producer's control. Some things, however, are not. Like, for instance, whether or not the bird flying overhead is going to kill your entire flock. It's an issue that has popped up several times over the last decade, causing the depopulation of more than 110 million birds in the process. And in late 2014, the industry didn't know what was about to hit it. Two West Coast backyard poultry producers had confirmed cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza in December of that year. The disease would go on to spread throughout the country over the 18 months that would follow, causing the largest animal health emergency in the country's history to that point. All told, 200 detections of HPAI would be confirmed by the end of 2015, and more than 50 million birds would face depopulation as a result. I don't think we were fully uh, cognizant of the biosecurity lapses that were occurring in some places. And that was a big lesson we learned and the producers learned. That's APHIS Administrator Kevin Shea. As the disease spread like wildfire across bird-dense areas of the country, USDA dusted off its HPAI strategy and ended up adapting it on the fly. In some cases, that led to improvements in depopulation protocols. But Bill Northey, who was Iowa's Ag Secretary at the time, said, on the other hand, changes in facility decontamination protocols caused a lot of confusion. Probably all the plans work, but changing plans didn't work in the middle of cleanup. Uh, or somebody'd say, this disinfectant will do it, and the next group says, no, disinfectants won't, it has to be heat, and so you gotta start back over again. And Some of that happened early in that process in 2015, not because anybody wanted to be unhelpful, it just was a lack of coordination. Jack Shear has had a laundry list of titles at USDA and APHIS throughout his tenure. In 2015, he was dispatched to Iowa and stuck around for a good chunk of the state's disease outbreak. Northey even goes so far as to credit him with helping get the disease under control. Jack really helped provide a consistent message from APHIS. It said, okay, this is the way we're doing it. And whatever team is in here, this is the way we're going to do it. We're not going to change what we're asking a producer to do. Um, this is the one way to be able to make it happen, and we're going to operate that way. And, and it really took away the tension between, first of all, everybody's under pressure. You know, a producer never expected this to happen. It's emotionally and financially devastating. And that's not the greatest time to be able to, you know, for somebody to change the plans to somebody or provide uncertainty or not let them know whether they're going to, really get compensation or not. Shear didn't exactly jump at the opportunity to take that much credit when I talked to him. To be honest with you, in every outbreak that we ever work, there's some irregularities because we have incident management teams that shift in and out of states and, and locations about every 21 to 28 days. 
okay? So unless you have good, I'd say tremendous communication across those lines, things get changed, things are different. And what all I really did was stay there. What's more, Shear said some of the decisions facing him and others working to slow the spread of HPAI ended up being relatively simplistic. The definition of what is clean, we changed that during the 15 outbreak. We went to virus elimination, which meant we didn't care if the facility was spotlessly clean, which the contractors in some cases went for. We just wanted to eliminate the virus, test for and eliminate the virus. Speaking of those contractors, Shea said one of the biggest lessons USDA learned was not to use them. A lesson that came in handy when HPAI started to rear its ugly head once again in 2022. We learned that we needed to get depopulation done quicker than we did last time. We also learned that using contractors to do much of the work on farm was both expensive and not necessarily timely. And we made a major change by employing the owners themselves and workers on the farms to do much of the work in terms of the depopulation, cleaning, uh, disinfection, eliminating virus, composting, carcasses. So we now pay them directly, which is less expensive for the government and also provides an income stream for those owners and their workers while they are not able to produce. The 2022 and 2023 HPAI outbreak has had a long tail, with detections stretching back to February of 2022. More than 61 million birds have been affected, but more than 60% of the depopulations took place in the first three months of the outbreak. New detections are coming daily, but average depopulations by month are down more than 93% year over year. There's progress, but Shea says there is still room for improvement, especially in how USDA assigns staff to handle the outbreaks. We have to deploy people who have full-time veterinary jobs around the country, signing export certificates, testing animals, doing all kinds of the regular work that APHIS veterinarians and animal health technicians do all the time. We can't ask them to go for the duration of an outbreak. Uh, for one thing, that's taken them away from their families, but also it leaves work behind. And so this is something we're really wrestling with, still wrestle with, his dream is a group of vets that can be dispatched to a crisis area at a moment's notice. A veterinary SWAT team, if you will. Absent that, he says veterinarians shouldn't leave their schooling without some kind of foreign animal disease training. Many of them don't get that kind of training. Vet schools are, you know, God bless them, mostly involved in training people to be pet doctors. And we need more veterinarians who recognize these diseases because the key always is finding it and diagnosing it right away. Before we move on from HPAI, we need to talk about vaccination, or in the case of the U.S. poultry industry, lack thereof. Despite the millions of birds that have been lost to HPAI over the last two years, the U.S. poultry industry is not currently vaccinating against the disease. In fact, it's illegal to do so. But vaccine options exist. In fact, Beringer Ingelheim, which, by way of disclosure, is the sponsor of this podcast, is working with the French government on HPAI vaccination in the country's duck flock. Rick Phillips directs the Professional Services Veterinarian Group for the company. He says the debate on whether or not to vaccinate in the U.S. is complicated by several factors. As soon as France started vaccinating, you know, the, the regulations kicked in and we banned 
you know, any any kind of duck products coming from France was uh, was impacted. And it's just again, it's it's part of the the regulations that are in place between the countries. And that's why the the U.S. One of the reasons why the U.S. is hesitant to vaccinate is because of the trade implications. But also, uh, we don't want to we don't want to move there because it's more complicated than it looks. For instance, the actual administration of the vaccine. Longer lifespan birds like turkeys and laying hens would require treatment to be completed in two stages, which introduces human labor and animal welfare questions. We don't have the ability to mass apply the vaccine in the field. We would have to handle them, and that would be a, a sub-Q or IM injection. So you can imagine that could be very labor-intensive and uh, stress on the bird. So that's another consideration. But yeah, so in, in a small, long, short-lived birds and broilers, uh, they can do with one vaccination uh, and mass applied in the hatchery. So we could we could cover those. Fortunate, unfortunate, fortunately, uh, broilers are less uh, impacted by high fat avian influenza. It's turkeys and the commercial layers that are that would require the two the two vaccinations. And then there's the issue of monitoring where the disease is spreading. Existing technology can be confused by infections versus immunizations. In lieu of inoculating wide swaths of the country's birds, the industry and government authorities have preferred another approach to maintaining trade flows, regionalization. The concept is relatively simple. If a country, say the United States, is dealing with a disease outbreak, trading partners should not reject product from that entire country, but rather just the area of the outbreak. Basically, don't let Iowa's HPAI detection affect Delaware's poultry sales. But regionalization and other disease-related trade issues can have a hard time translating from paper to policy. Ted McKinney dealt with some of those issues during his time as the Trump administration's USDA trade undersecretary. Needless to say, he's skeptical the Chinese blockage of American beef for more than a decade was entirely science-based. Much of their planning and decision-making was deliberate. They knew how many years ago we had the cow that came from Canada that stole Christmas. So much of that was deliberate. It wasn't just because they're still afraid. And sometimes the objections to regionalization actually came from within the U.S. We, we see the world through our own lens, our own farm. And yes, there were many a conversation where I had to say, well, well I know you want market access for your fill-in-the-blank, beef, pork, poultry, lamb, whatever, but don't you think that they want access to our market too? And then you could enter into a good conversation. Several improvements have occurred over the years to the government and industry response to outbreaks. But major growth has happened in keeping some diseases from ever showing up in the first place. In particular, two diseases, foot and mouth disease and African swine fever. Neither have been detected on American shores despite showing up in country after country around the world. African swine fever has gotten as close as about 200 nautical miles from the Puerto Rican shoreline when it was detected in the Dominican Republic. A big reason why the country is still free of the diseases? According to former NPPC chief vet Liz Wagstrom, it's beagles. In all the testing that people have been doing, they found nothing that is more accurate than the nose of a, of a dog to identify certain scents. And... Um, you know, having watched the Beagles work, you have a wonderful little dog that wanders around an airport, nicely sits down next to somebody's bag, and virtually is always right to say there's something in there, whether it's an apple or a sausage or, you know, some 
food item that they shouldn't be bringing in. The so-called Beagle Brigade helps to keep items that could be carrying a foreign animal disease out of the country. And looking forward, there's also potential in new technology like gene editing, which can protect animals from disease should they ever encounter it. Most viruses enter a cell by hooking on to some some part of a cell, and then they enter the cell, the animal host cell, by by hooking on to this receptor. And then they enter the cell, they multiply within the cell, and then spread you know, from cell to cell through this this hooking onto a receptor process. And so what the gene editing process can do is um, help produce animals that don't have the receptors that those specific viruses need to have to enter the cell. So it is a virus specific because each virus may use a different receptor. But, of course, Wagstrom points out there are numerous questions around the future of gene editing in animal agriculture. What is the regulatory framework? How would meat from those animals be labeled? Would consumers be, well, interested in being consumers? Then there's the foot-and-mouth disease vaccine bank, a major priority of many animal ag groups in the last farm bill, including Colin Woodall and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. You know, we were successful in the last farm bill in getting that established, a U.S. bank, so that way we can protect ourselves. But we need to continue to maintain that and grow it. And that's what our engagement in this next farm bill is, is going to be focused on to some extent, is making sure that that funding remains in place. But one of the things that came out of BSE was that increased conversation or communication between us as the industry and the state, local, and national governments. And so we've done so many tabletop exercises and drills in preparing for foot and mouth disease that had we not had BSE, I'm not so sure that we necessarily would be in that spot. So while it was uh, devastating to us as an industry, there are some good things that came out of it that help us be better as an industry today day than we were in 2003. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim. Tune in next week for our look at the evolution of risk management options for producers. For AgriPulse Deep Dive, I'm Spencer Chase.